So I was having that conversation with my mom about uh, the mortgage for the house that I bought for her. Like she was like, uh, you be having me pay for these extracurricular, like for like these little things. I'm like, ma'am, do you think, how much you think the mortgage is for that house you live in? Right. I'm like, that's a $1,200 mortgage. Mm-hmm. You think the little bit of money that you putting in doing anything is not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's doing nothing. What's up? Welcome to the You Know's Best Pod. I appreciate your support. In return, I hope I provide you with some worthwhile gems that benefit you on your journey. At the very least, I hope I put a smile on your face. If not, hopefully you share this with someone that does benefit. And I got you next time. Again, thanks for joining today. And let's get this thing going. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Hugh Knows Best Pod. And I'm gonna give you the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Well, as best as I can, so help me God. <laughs> so today I got my uh, very close friend, very uh, interesting friend, very, uh... let's see. Very uh, accomplished friend. Okay, I'll take that. Yeah. I thought I was going somewhere else. Yes. I won't say her real name, but this is Marty, everyone. Hi. Um, it's Marty Burris. Uh, so I brought Marty on the show because Marty has a very interesting story. Uh, we were actually talking about it. I didn't know that Marty is from the the Gary of Wisconsin. <laughs> um, so she's from like on the border of Illinois and Wisconsin. Uh, and she said she 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 was enlightening me about some things, but uh, I think her story from being the, from the Gary of Wisconsin to now being the like a senior director of product at Salesforce, which is a great accomplishment, especially as a, a woman of color, a black woman uh, being in tech. Um, but she also has many things going on. She's a great traveler. She's a um, a nonprofit owner, right? Um, but also a great friend. And we'll, we'll get into a lot of those things um, as we get going. Uh, so, Marty, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Hubert. Appreciate it. Uh, Marty was talking shit about me before she came in here on uh, Instagram, calling me her judgy friend. I if mean, y'all see his clips. Y'all see the same stuff on Instagram and podcasts and YouTube as I do. Is he not the judgmental one? I'm not really judging. I'm just calling out things that I do not like. I don't like them. I don't go up to people and say that to their face anymore. Oh yeah, hang on anymore. I haven't done that in probably about five, 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 six years. <laughs> five, six years. Uh, you know, start letting people you know enjoy themselves. Maturity, growth. This is growth, as they say it on Secure. Um, but yeah, so Marty, um, like I said, thanks for coming on our show. I, I wanted to kind of get into like your origin story, like you from Wisconsin. First of all, when you think of a black person from Wisconsin, it's rare. And most of those black people come from Milwaukee. You're not from Milwaukee. So, like, how was that growing up, being a black girl from, like, a border town of Illinois in Wisconsin? Like, what was that like? So, a lot of people have an assumption that I grew up in this very whitewashed community. Uh Maybe with a little fountain outside in the front yard and all that. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. White picket fences and everything. No, no, no. We didn't have a fence. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I did have a very strong family dynamic and very kind of like Cosby the TV show upbringing mm-hmm. in terms of like the family dynamic and all that but it wasn't the town is actually really black so i always explain people great migration right and my grandma she didn't know right all these terms right she's just telling her story but the way she describes you know it's my family uh, my mom's eyes from rural little town mississippi talking like 
less than 10,000 people town. Shit, I didn't even know that. Mm -hmm. And then my dad's side is from, you know, Western Tennessee, like two hours from Nashville, also a small town. Okay. Um, actually, you know, Lane College is, that's where they're from. Okay. And so both families all set to this area. And so you think Great Migrational, when they taught about us in school, they always stopped in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And my family was in Chicago at one point. And then they kept hearing about jobs an hour away in Wisconsin. Okay. And so that's how we ended up up there. They took jobs working in the mills, working in paint, you know, working. It's a very blue collar town. Everybody works in the factory. Right. Um, and so that's how we kind of got there. But everyone was black. All the businesses were black. All my teachers were black growing up, hmm. all the way through high school. Um, all of the things that we did were black. The city council of Pearson was black. Mm. And I'm like, if anything, Netflix needs to do a special on this little slice of Wisconsin. <laughs> What's the name of the city? Beloit. Beloit. Beloit, like, Wisconsin. What? Sounds like Beloit. Well, they say it's Beloit because if you drop a rock in the toilet, it says Beloit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. What but I don't know. I don't know the story. But it's just such an interesting little town. But like I said, I grew up very black. Okay. Yeah, I think I can relate to that. Like, I think a lot of times people associate places with whiteness that don't necessarily that's not necessarily the case right um i i knew that you had this like strong family dynamic i wouldn't have guessed that your hometown was black or like it was very and black. then i grew up with both sides of my family growing up in the same town yeah and so that was also cool too small town so like literally every street i had uncle or auntie or cousin mm -hmm. and so like it was population like 500 people mm -hmm. no it's like it's like thirty thousand. okay but <laughs> you know my my college was bigger than that but you know everybody lived in Sack street my grandmother owned a lot of property so mm. she owned every all of her everyone's houses she even owned my other grandparents house like mm. and so she owned and this is your maternal grandmother yes okay and so um that all contributed to this family dynamic but i think it's very rare to grow up with both sides of your family and because they grew up there and they my parents moved there, they were, you know, small kids when they moved to Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, their families grew up together, right? Mm -hmm. It's a small town. So, like, I got a lot of double cousins as well, you know, because my dad and his cousins went met my mom, her sisters and cousins. And so, so the know, family just all mixed up. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, I'm hanging out with my family this weekend, but both sides of my family are going to be there, even though this is on my dad's side, because everybody's just really friendly and cool. And, that's dope. Yeah. That's hella dope. So that's interesting. Like you said, your grandmother owned so much property. So that explains maybe your business. Mm -hmm. I like uh, I that's where I started making money growing up. Because I would, if I needed money for something, you know, we, there were seven of us. My parents had any money. Mm -hmm. My dad did not graduate from high school. My mom barely did. When she did graduate, she was pregnant. So, um, you know, very humble beginnings on that part. But if I needed money, my grandmother had it. And so mm -hmm. I wanted it. I would go and figure out a job I could do for her. And so maybe it was painting the walls, running property, or mowing lawns. Um, mowing lawns? I'm very good at mowing lawns, actually. Um, All right, fellas. Uh, me and Marty, we were just talking about this. She is newly so. single. <laughs> so if you need a woman that can mow lawns, because you can't. She decides. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, like, because everybody, everybody doesn't want straight up and down. Some people yeah. like the inner, where it goes into like a square. Yeah, That's well, like, you're yeah. also supposed to do, you're not supposed to do the same way every time. My dad owned a lawn care company. I don't know if you knew that, but. I just learned from my dad, he was a carpenter. Yeah, so my dad was like, owned a lawn care company 
I hated that shit as a kid. Well, I had mad allergies, so what what happened is I would show up with this little girl with my lawnmower at people's house, like, can I mow your lawn? And they was looking at me, I was like, hey, you're gonna just give me twenty dollars and I'm No, get out of here. So, but but my grandmother, she she changed it. I had to work. Fair enough. You took allergy pill and got to work. Okay, so you said both your parents really like their education ended at high school. My grandmother's both none of my grandparents went to school past middle school. Okay. Yeah. And then your parents on high school. High school. Yeah. And I was the first person on both sides of the family to graduate. Okay. So like you the first person in black first person in your family to graduate from high school. College. Or for college, okay. Mm-hmm. In an all black city. Mm-hmm. And you choose to go to Purdue. Okay, so let's get into that. Mm-hmm. So in high school my parents went to Indiana. Okay. And so that's how I get there. When it's time to go to college, I had no one to help. So I, fun fact, finished high school early. I actually finished high school when I was 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had basically a gap year before it was cool. Mm-hmm. And so in a year, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so I had this little guidance counselor, my principal, that were willing to help me. Mm-hmm. And so I only applied to two colleges. It was either Vanderbilt or Purdue. Mm-hmm. And I never visited them. You, were, you must really love the black It was a black and gold. Like the colors, okay. Because um, I, I was thinking about like what colors do I want to wear long term? Like, because mm-hmm. I know like alumni, I mean, I always have to wear this color. And so okay. it was either black and gold or like navy. I was hoping that like I was kind of a fan of UConn, but that just seemed like was going to be my vibe. You're very far. Well, it, I liked it because of basketball, but when I started looking at like the academics, I was like, oh, I think I'm going to go Purdue. Um, <laughs> so, um, no shade to anybody. Go But yeah, that's that's how it happened. And so they kind of helped me. I never did a college visit okay. because who going to know to take me there? Um, and so I, it's <laughs> so funny. I don't ever told anybody this. So I could see what Purdue was like. I went on Google Maps. You know, you can drop a pin and a person. Yeah. That's how I did my tours. So I could see what Purdue was like and choose to go there. Excuse me. So you walked around campus with a little man. Mm-hmm. Well, this also tells you how old Marty is because she was able to do <laughs> stuff like that because- How smart she is. Also smart, but like thinking about it, like you are, I'm not gonna say your age, but you graduated college. I mean, graduated high school at 16. So you're doing this in the like mid late 2000s. Yeah. Trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's it's always interesting to hear people's stories, right? So like I'm the first college graduate in my family as well. And nope, I didn't go visit Howard at all. Mm-hmm. Like I knew just about how I read it in a book, it sounded really cool. Yeah. Just, I, I my favorite color is blue. Mm-hmm. So I was like, cool. Picked all the colors. I was it was the furthest school away from my house. Mm-hmm. Um and it was the number one HBCU. So I was like, cool, that works for me. And I had a very business program. Yep, in the when the financial aid came back, I didn't understand private colleges. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw that Vanderbilt financial aid, it was pretty. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I did too, my parents know about this now, but the other thing I did was they were not really a fan of me going away to school. They wanted me to go to like, a local community college. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was, you know. Because of your age or just? Because of my age, just okay. because my, I wasn't the first one to try to go to college. I was the first one to graduate. So they were like, if she's close to home, maybe she'll finish, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I did was, because they weren't trying to help, I just waited until tax time. And when the tax papers came, I just got their social securities off, did my password, and that's how I got all the way. And so when it was time to go to Purdue, I was already accepted and already done all the financial aid and done everything. It was just like, hey, in a couple of weeks, can y'all drive me on? 
So you told him before, like two weeks before? Maybe. Maybe I should do that with my mom. So a lot of people don't know the story. So like, yes, I went to Howard, loved that experience. My mom wanted me to go to school at the college that was in my hometown. Mm-hmm. That was a, maybe a couple blocks from my high school. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hell no. Now it's not a community college, but I'm like, I'm not going to school down the street from where I went to high school. Yes. Just not happening. My mom yes. kicked my mom kicked me out of out of the house like a month before I went to school because she really like I'm her only child. So like she didn't want me to go far away. And they became an argument because I paid for everything. Like because yeah, I did too. in high school I had a job. I was getting social security because my mom was on uh disability and I had convinced her to give me my child support check my last year <laughs> in high school. So I had all this money to like buy clothes and pay for me to go to school. Mm-hmm. And so I had already paid for everything. And when she came at me like, I don't think you should go there. I was like, I already paid for that. So I'm going, I don't give a damn what you're talking about at this point. Like, yeah, when I told him I was going, it wasn't, they actually didn't give a lot of a pushback. Yeah. No. Well, it was just going like, down the street, kind of. Well, no, I was three hours from home. Okay. So he was like this close to the Indiana. Yeah. Okay. And so I was like, Okay, this is cool. And it was like far enough that they couldn't pop up on me. So mm-hmm. I was cool with that. Um, and so it just did it that way. But yeah, it's always funny that little text W2 thing. You know, I, I didn't, they never, I don't think they ever put too much of it together, like how I got into school without a fast food. Because I don't think they were remembering or thinking about that from my right. brothers. But no, I just waited till the mail came and text time. Did that. My gap year I spent working. I was intern. I interned at Merrill Lynch and I had, um, I worked at McDonald's afterwards. I always was working two jobs. And so I would go to Merrill Lynch like 11 to 5 every day. Mm-hmm. And then I would go to McDonald's 5 to close. You was getting it out of London. Yeah, absolutely. I've had two jobs up until... I've actually I still had two jobs. I've always had two jobs for as long as I can remember. I'm probably in my first W-2 job. I was 14. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I said, I was always working for my grandma. I started working for my grandma when I was probably 8 or 9. So that, that does explain a lot, like why you don't really. So if you if you know Marty, Marty don't really give people a lot of grace <laughs> for like not being on that shit. Um, and so now that gives context as yeah, to I've why. I've always had two jobs. I've always worked, 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 worked. And you know when I went to school, because again, seven kids, mm-hmm. there wasn't any money for me by the time I went. My brother already tried. He already used up all of the parents' little savings money, mm-hmm. and they were still digging their way out of having to send him to college right. and him not finished. And so there was no money. So I knew that there was no backup plan. Right. If I couldn't make ends meet, make things shake, whatever. I was back at home mm-hmm. and that was the last place I wanted to be. Like, I was one of those people that like plotted well, when I turned 18, I see That's real. Like, I'm out of here. And so when I got out, it was just time to execute on the plan. That's real. So, did you have a scholarship to Purdue or? Mm-hmm. So, you paid your way through school? I came, out, first... I came out undergrad $80,000 a year. Okay. And I'm going to assume you're debt free now because of how well you manage your money and things yes. of that nature. Um, so, like, how has it been, like, I mean, you grew up in that black town and you moved to Indiana, but like, I feel like Purdue still was probably maybe a, a little bit of a culture shock once mm-hmm. you get on campus. It was, I think, um, the transition that like a couple of years in Indiana helped because then by the time I got there, I didn't feel out of place. I was also going to get to programs growing up, so I yeah. was used to 
being, you know, one of a few black kids in these like gifted programs. And so when I got to school, it kind of just felt like, oh, okay. Kind of felt like uh, high school a little bit. Like, okay, so there's only a thousand black people. That's how many black people in my high school. That kind of works, you know? Gotcha. And so it did feel that out of place. And then Purdue is a college town, meaning the town of West Lafayette is built around Purdue. No, Purdue was their first and the town came later. Mm-hmm. So everything is built for students. And right. so that helped too. I think if I was at like, I don't know, what do they call it? Like an urban campus or something. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have probably done as well because I would have been much shell shocked for a small town group. But I think being in from one small town to another small town, I was able to really kind of like, you know, maneuver. And then I met a lot of amazing friends that, you know, today, right? Um, who I met literally the first week of school that really helped me figure out college, figure out campus. And I don't like having my way through those four years. No, it's funny because because of Marty, I know uh, the Indiana college system well, very well. Uh, I know people from Indiana State, um, IU, Purdue, Butler. Like people are like, how you know that person? You can go to school in Indiana. I'm like, it's a long story at this point. <laughs> like, um, and I would have never thought I would have made all these friends from all these schools in Indiana, but now it's like a Because it's all connected. Even though we all went to different schools, you know, we went and parked at each other's campuses, so yeah. it's all somewhat connected. Even we would come up to Northwestern. I had a friend who played on the basketball team here, so we would come up here too sometimes and go to Evanston. But yeah, this little, and I also worked in sports. I thought that was my first career, was I thought I was going to work in athletics. So I traveled with our athletics department, so I went to all the schools in Big Ten as well. But did you major in engineering when you got to school? Mm-hmm. No, I was a business student. Okay. So I had what's called the athletes major. I didn't know that. Mm. It's no help. So I majored in organizational leadership, which is part of the college of technology. But that was athletes major. So I not only be working in the athletic department, all of my classmates that were black in class, mm. the football team, the basketball team, track team, whatever. So, you know, people make fun of me all the time because that was my major. It's like, no offense to anybody. It's like having a major in the criminal justice. Like everybody, it was like a joke. And so I went and got a second degree. So I actually graduated twice from Purdue. I went to a second degree, starting sophomore year in an entirely different part, and that was in business management. And so um, I actually graduated May, and then I graduated in August with the other degree. No, I was just saying... um, Oh, you did the other program? I did the other program to kind of beef it up a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, uh, to kind of help myself. I was just very nervous I was going to get out of school and have a job. Gag is the people who are in that major are some of the most accomplished people that I know that graduated from Purdue. Everybody, the organizational leadership, <laughs> yeah, VPs, heads, or whatever, CEO like jokes on y'all. Y'all made fun of us all that time, and everybody I know who has that degree that's phenomenal in their careers right now. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of funny how that all works out. Well, I think a lot of times curriculum does matter, um, mm-hmm. but like you guys probably found it easier to get internships or things once you get out of school and the whole degree is around it's basically like organizational psychology so you're learning how to navigate corporate america mm-hmm. and so it makes it very easy like to this day i use that degree like mm-hmm. to get stuff done i reference books that i read during that time and i'm trying to explain something you know i always reference this book called like who moved my cheese when i'm talking about like us making an organizational change that's going to be restructuring my work like I know it feels weird right now, but it made me a better people leader because I was like, you know, all the curriculum was around basically navigating, navigating corporate, all my case studies were on corporate stuff, and I still use a lot of that stuff. On okay. And then, so you do all that, you matriculate, you get to college, what, you graduated like 20? 21? Yeah, I, was, I just turned 21. Okay. 
and then you went to where's Detroit first? Detroit. Now, mind you, Marty's lived in these, Only big, little town. these little towns. Um, Ooh, she, she went to Detroit where we met our great our great guest Carice. Yes. So yeah. I know Carice through Marty. Yeah. We met yeah. on a trip to Phuket. Yeah. Um, it was my first Marty Con trip. So if you follow Marty on Instagram, you'll see that she has these amazing trips for her birthday. We'll get into that. But um, so you went to Detroit after school. Yeah. And you was who who you work for? Hewlett Packard. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the tech company? They're not tech. They're the computers. Computers. computers yeah. yeah. I'm thinking about um, the Oh, 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 yeah. Hewitt, <laughs> <laughs> Hewitt. Yeah. Hewitt. <laughs> Hewitt. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it was good. I think Detroit was, was shell shot. I was very fortunate. One of my uncles had moved. One of my uncles had a grip in Wisconsin and moved to that area. So I was completely by myself. So I had my uncle there. Um, my college roommate had moved there a year prior, so I had a friend there and a couple other friends went to that area during that time too. And so um, I was able to kind of, you know, fix myself in there. Um, and so, and then after that, it was just a lot of hustle and grit. I get out there, feeling myself, you know, I got like highest starting salaries out of my class. Like, ooh, yeah, I'm hot, man. I'm like $65,000 a year. Fuck with me. I'm 21. And then that eighty thousand dollars student loan debt. <laughs> Start eating at that sixty five. Holy, the car payments and all this stuff. Because again, there's no one to call. So if I need something, it's credit, it's finance. So I learned about Dave Ramsey. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna snowball my way out of this. Because when I first saw the tickets for school and how much money I owe, I literally burst out crying. I could not stop crying. So I was like, I owe more money than I make right now. And so I learned about Dave Ramsey. I started snowballing. Um, I house had lived with my college roommate, we run it back again, and I get a second job again. And so I, during the day, am a corporate consulting and, you know, doing software implementations and system design, and at night, I worked out of And I did it for three years. And I'll guard me at the end of the day. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, like, I feel like a lot of times people know their friends, but they don't know their friends for real. Like, because you have to like really go ask people these questions and it don't really come up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember talking about it, but yeah, I did that for three years. Um, and it was a humbling experience. You know how it is, it teaches you how, first off, how wild white people are. You know how many times my coworkers came into that and didn't recognize that I was their coworker? And I was running around the restaurant. Like, I would not see them, I'll try to avoid them, but like, they were obviously They were coming out of garden and like, wilding it, out, being disrespectful. You know, no, no, no. They did not recognize I am their coworker. Oh. Because they don't see you as a buddy. They not they, they don't even see me. They're, this is just my server. They didn't even notice, or they didn't notice me walking around in the restaurant. And I would notice these around coworkers. I mean, it's kind of thick for them not to notice you, bro. Duh. They they did not register me like you are. I'm sorry. You are a tall, thick black woman. How do you not notice? They. I mean, there was other buddy who the orchard, but they never registered. My coworker could also be a server to hey, me this like he never registered. And it just kind of taught me a lot about how white people just really only see black folks in their certain capacity and they don't have the capacity to see them other ways. But no, I did that for years. Um, and it was not fun. But, you know, that job got me through. It paid, you know, I was making, it was all cash. So I was able to put that towards paying my car off. Thanks to loan off, starting to build up in savings and a nest egg. 
Um, and, you know, I just had like two rules with I said, if I'm off in my day job, I'm off here. <laughs> and it was cool too, because there were other people who were doing what I was doing. So there's a bunch of lawyers who work with me as well, who were all- Trying to pay off Exactly, trying to pay off their debt early. You know, I'm about to start looking at my, my uh, waiters and waitresses a little bit different. I'm like, hey, what do you, you, what do, you do from nine to five o'clock? Yeah. Um, you'd be surprised, but they were, it was a, a group of, we're also friends. I just seen them when I went to Detroit two weeks ago. We're also friends. I was in their weddings and stuff, but, um, and white folks, but they all graduated from, um, from law school around the same time. They were all early lawyers at different startups and firms and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so they all worked in restaurants with me, but it was grind. And like, you know, when you think about how long people spent 22 to 25, mm-hmm. right? You the club every weekend, you going out, you doing all this stuff. And I am slaving my subway, working doubles on Saturdays, you know, 11 11 on a Saturday to do this. Um, and the idea of like going out and going to party was a lot more structured for me. Like I can only do that, like, you know. Every like, once in a while. Yeah, like, because I knew how hard the dollar was to come by. So the idea of like going out to the club in Detroit and buying a bunch of liquor, doing all this stuff, I'm like, oh no, I can't do all that. And it's Detroit. And it's Detroit. Now, granted, fortunate is Detroit, so you meet some nice man, you go out and you have fun, and not pay for anything, right? But it was just a much different experience in my early twenties because most people started that grind like that, like I need to make my money and get serious mm-hmm. in their late twenties, and I did it in my early twenties. So in my late twenties, I was actually having a lot more fun, so able to travel and do whatever I wanted, and then you reach those goals by hustling more in my early twenties. I mean, I think that's a great lesson for like younger people, like. Just because you got that degree and you think that degree is going to make you some money, you can always hustle a little harder so you don't have to hustle as much when you're in your late 20s and your late in your early 30s or whatever. Like, I wish I kind of had that example because, like, when I graduated college, me, the, the thought of working two jobs or doing an additional side job, that was so beneath me. But, like... A lot of people, whenever I, I tell my siblings that... Still, like, I call them like, hey, let me borrow. Don't get another job. <laughs> Man, I ain't, you know, so you calling a person who worked two jobs for years to say that you won't get a second job and you don't, you're not willing to do what I was doing, but you want the benefits of what I did to mm-hmm. get Okay, cool. Well, I think, but also, I think like people who don't understand, like, even when once you do graduate college, even if you have a great career, yeah. even if you have a great career. There are other things that are going to come up that having a second stream of income can offset that. Like, mm-hmm. um, like me having a kid or you having sick parents or whatever. Like, yo, your singular income, once, once something else comes into that dynamic, it kind of stretches that income in a way, in a different way than you was expecting. Like, I was yeah. talking to my friend about this, uh, this week. She was like, Oh, my landlord's ready to do my rent. And she was having a little dr- dramatic experience about it. And I was like, bro, I don't want to hear nothing about your your $200 rent. I was like, you understand that my child has cost me an additional $4,000 a month in expenses? Mm-hmm. I was like, I was living life. <laughs> <laughs> I was enjoying my life. Exactly. I wasn't thinking about paying no bills. I was like, mm-hmm. these, these cars get paid off when they get paid off. Yeah. But like, I was like, I have an additional $2,500 to pay for my where I live at. I got child support, you know. But I now I got utilities at another place. I gotta have groceries here. It's more expensive to have groceries in Illinois than it is in Georgia. I'm like, bro, I want to hear about your two hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. Like, you don't have to. You have to suck it up. And so that's, I guess, you know, to your point of me not having a whole lot of 
empathy around that. Like yeah. now, because when I think too, when you know that there is no backup plan, mm-hmm. you will figure out a plan. I yeah. think so many people have are fortunate to have a backup plan of family or parents, or there was no backup plan. Mm-hmm. The second I got out of school, I was making more money than my parents ever made. Right. There was nothing. When I went and got my first apartment, my rent in my apartment was more than their mortgage was at their house. They could not call, and there were still kids at home. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a way to call home. I mean, they're my parents praying for me. They, you know, they love you. They love, but they, that's, you know, that was it. Yeah. That was the extent of it. Or if I knew if they were giving me something, it was they were not paying the bill that month to give it to me, or kids weren't getting what they needed in terms of, you know, supplies and stuff. So I could have, and so I, that didn't sit right with me, and I'm like, I'm young, I'm going to get myself. Yeah, and I think it's it's hard for parents to understand that. Like my parents used to be like, "Oh, do you need anything?" And I'd be like, "Bro, you can't even touch. Like, whatever you think you're gonna send me ain't gonna do nothing. It, it, yes, it, it may pay my gas, pay for me to get some gas." I still don't know how much my bills are. <laughs> uh, I was having that conversation with my mom about uh, the mortgage for the house that I bought for her. Like, she was like, uh, "You be having me pay for these extracurricular, like for like these little things." I'm like, "Ma'am, do you think?" How much you think the mortgage is for that house you live in? Right. I'm like, that's a twelve hundred dollar mortgage. Mm-hmm. You think the little bit of money that you putting in doing anything is not? Is <laughs> it's, it's, it's doing nothing? Yeah. I'm like, now nah, if you want to pay the mortgage, right. by all means, I'll pay every I'll pay for everything else that you want to um like I'll pay the utility bills, I'll pay for the internet, I'll pay for all that. Like, go ahead. You can take the twelve hundred dollars. Listen. Or you could move out and I could rent the house out. Would you want? But I think that's something to talk about too, because I think that was another thing that was a hard kind of truth as well when I got out of school. You know, people heard where I worked, what school I graduated from, and they saw what they thought was a lifestyle on social media. And so that was the beginning of me feeling like the friend, the, the, the family member who had just made it to leave mm-hmm. because the amount of money the family had asked for and has asked for over the years is astronomical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad explained to me really well. He said, you know, you set yourself up as a pillar in this family, whether you realize or not. The second you cross that stage, people started to see you differently. You ain't yeah. got that job. You know what you're doing. You know where your life is and you work these two jobs so everybody don't see you that way. Yeah. And to this day, right, I've been in high school 10 years and I still an adjustment um, is trying to realize that, you know, people see me in a certain way that I don't necessarily see myself, um, especially when it comes to like family and how much to do for family or, or not do for family. Because, um, you know, my dad passed away during this time as well, back in 2015. And so that also added a stressor because he was the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And so that added a lot of stressors at home and had to make some tough decisions about how I was going to show up with my family and not show up. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to get into that. Like, you like you lost your father. Mm-hmm. And, like, I always tell people I can sympathize to, like, I, for, like for the most part, I can't even, like, empathize with people for losing grandparents, mm-hmm. right? Because all my grandparents are still here. Um, that I grew up with, but like to lose a parent at in your twenties and your when you're that like in his fifties, yeah. So like I've had friends lose their parent, and I'm like I don't know what I would do, especially in the midst of like just 
just graduating college, getting, getting your life together, and to like have your parent go and then that shift your life. Mm-hmm. So like, how is like how is that journey been? I'm the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life. Hands yeah. down, no, nothing comes close to that. That is the deepest, darkest period of my life. Um, the road to lose my dad in the year following that, um, because I think in most people's family dynamic, their mom is like the person. And dads are like how it looks on TV. It's like this like supplemental person who works and just, and just, just shows always up. is there's computer and just shows up, makes a couple jokes. But we're just happy he's there, right? Mm-hmm. Our dynamic is much different. My dad was the primary here. He retired early um, because he you know had a chronic you know situation, and so he retired early. Um, and so my dad was a parent that was there when I got off from school. My dad has taught me everything I know about life. Anything that people think that wow she's so smart, she's so wise. Everything, even out of my career, my dad is the one who put this stuff into me. He's the one who taught me about tech and innovation. He's the one who told me about product management. Like, and this is the man that barely graduated high school. Smartest person I've met. He was the most well-read person I've met too. My Mm -hmm. dad had walls from here to here, from there to there, books, and he read all of them. Mm -hmm. And he taught himself everything. Right, even um, teaching himself how to heal his body um, because he. Part of the reason I graduated from high school early is because my dad was given six months to live when I was a junior, a junior in high school. Wow. And so I went to my guidance counselor and was like, what does it take to graduate? I just want my dad to graduate. Because it you want, you want your six, dad to see you graduate. Yeah, and based on that six months, you're supposed to be going to June. I would have graduated in that. And it just it shook my world up. Um, and he was only supposed to even live with that disease for five years. That's the longest life expectancy. My dad lived with him at 15 and he didn't die from it either. Mm. He died because he got an infection. You know, mm. got an infection during septic, right? right? But he never actually died from the type of chronic cancer that he had. So um, he learned how to heal his body and how to keep his body healthy for all those years um, through self-educating on, you know, all these different aspects and just being this very well-read, very smart person. And he shared a lot of that knowledge with us. That's dope. Like, I think a lot of times the black father in the home mm-hmm doesn't necessarily get the like acclaim that they should get um because in our community the mom is usually the person that's there and important to everybody but like i I think without knowing your father i could see a lot of your father in you because you you're on top of shit right but you also don't let whatever's going on affect you too much like that's some my dad was like a military i would say he's like, like military training right mm-hmm. when something went to bother me and i would call him stressed out he would let me get it all out and he was like you gotta let it roll off you let water off the dust bag that's dope country people but right. like he would tell me that all the time um or if i fucked up mm-hmm. he would let me get it out cry it out oh you crashed your car damn that sucks and then he would say, did you pay your insurance? I'm like, well, yeah, but I did this and did this and this happened. And he's like, all right, well, guess what? Some lessons will not just cost you. This one's going to cost you whatever. Mm-hmm. And there was no, like, he was a very warm, kind dad. Mm-hmm. But anybody who my dad knew, he did not play. And he definitely didn't play about me. I ain't saying I was his favorite, but. Look, <laughs> favor ain't fair. Favor ain't fair. You know. And I think, you know, I was a child. I would say I was a child. He prayed for it. You know, my brother came but he wanted a daughter at the time my brothers came because they had only had boys mm-hmm. uh, and so you know they were going for the little nuclear family at that time and so they were really praying to have a girl and that appeared and, and then they had other yeah. girls and yeah just... 
Unfortunately, but it was, <laughs> you know, it's about Marty has two sisters. I do. I have two sisters, four brothers, um, big family, um, and obviously same parents. Um, but yeah, that also is a dynamic too. Just growing up with that many people, because now I can't stand anybody in my personal space. But when you're a kid and you don't have personal space and you never even get your own room until you go to college, and then once you get your own space, you're like, oh hell no, I'm never ever sharing my space. With no, I feel, I feel that because growing up as an only child, I don't want nobody in my like. I'm bit like people be like, you so like sometimes. Yeah. I'm like, I grew up in the house with an introvert. Mm-hmm. I'm not used to dealing with people unless I want to deal with them mm-hmm. or they want to be dealt with. But now you're in my space, so just sit over there and relax. But I want you to come over here. I tell you, come over here. It's fine. Yeah. It's or like just sit here. Imagine being like an introvert, but you can't get away. Yeah. There's no, even to this day, like when I go back to see my family, like I'm going to see my family later on today, I stay in a hotel because I have to be able to go decompress and it's too much. It's too much sensory overload for me. Mm-hmm. And now being older and understanding why it's too much, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I was a gifted child, a little bit more gifted than I realized, right? But it's, it's literally too much, like, and I will flip out. Um, too much sound, like I really can't stand a lot of sound. And I will absolutely lose it. Yeah. Um, if it's too loud, um, super sensitive to light, like mm-hmm. my apartment, I keep very kind of like dark and, moody. and clean. Yes, but I, I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I keep very moody, right? Mm-hmm. I, I like kind of like darker lights and all that. And so um, you would like stuff so long, you just always are trying to curate that experience when you're out doing this. Right. So then. You're in Detroit, right? Mm-hmm. You lose your father. Mm-hmm. And so that's 2015. And then I meet you in 2016. Yeah. So that that year after was really wild. Um, and I, you know, Hewlett Packard split into two companies, right? It was splitting mm-hmm. into a computer company and a software company. And they were splitting it into two. Um, and so there's Hewlett Packard, which is HP, right? Mm-hmm. HP is what everybody knows, the computer. Mm-hmm. There's the other side, right? And so because of that, my boss at the time kept saying, like, hey, I don't know if I can guarantee you a job. For somebody who literally, you know, is I, right when this is happening, I'm just getting to a place where I'm a little bit more comfortable financially, right? So I'm like, oh, I can't have a job. And so I started looking for a job. And my dad's passed at this point. And all roads lead to California. And I'm just like, no matter where I apply, the job is in New York, they'd be like California. Hey, Love your resume, but this role is actually in San Jose. Hey, we love your resume. This role is in Foster City, whatever, right? And I'm like, why does everything keep taking me to the bay? But this is my dad's idea. Before he passed, he kept telling me I need to move out there. And I'm like, Dad, I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to MIT. That is for extra, extra smart people. Hmm. And I'm I that kind of smart. I didn't know that. I um, didn't. I didn't know that that was a thing. <laughs> I mean, I have line brothers that with uh, my brother went to Brown. My brother that graduated from NYU and Harvard. That's not what I associated today with. I just associated I, with with tech nerds. When I because because he, he was saying Silicon Valley, you need to mm. be in Silicon Valley. You need to move out here. That's where people like your. That's where your mind needs to be. I'm like, man, this is so flattering that you think I'm not kind of smart, but I don't think I'm not kind of smart. I don't know what you think I do for a living, but I don't think it's that. Now, fast forward seven years. All right, he was right, but yeah. he's right about everything. So your parents know you've been. And when I got there, people were not nearly as smart as I thought. Or maybe I just was much more smart than I gave myself credit for, right? But yeah. Two things can be true. Yeah. 
and I, I get out there, I get land the opportunity. Um, when one take check, one what is it called? One take check, whatever. I try. I got on the first try. So mm. what I didn't know, I didn't know anything about product management. They told me I applied to the job because LinkedIn said I was a hundred percent skills match, and so I was, at that time I was applying anything and had managers. I was like, well, as far as just applying stuff, just <laughs> all day, mm-hmm. and I would only look into the job if they called me back, and then I would look into it and get myself ready. So when I called, I'm like, okay, product manager, which one is this? I'm like, oh, this sounds dope. All right, watched a couple YouTubes. They were like, you have to do a case, so I watched McKinsey case studies. I'm like, all right, cool, and got out there. They were so cheap. They didn't even let me stay for a full 24 hours. They flew me out, flew me back from Pacific to Detroit all on the same day. It was so good. But I get out there, I get the job. And so I moved to California. I'd never visited California outside of the 18 hours I was there for that interview. But I had some friends there from school. And Josh Elias. Yeah, made a shape. Um, and got out there and got back to Austin. So like for people that don't know what a product manager mm-hmm. does, like what is that? What does a product manager do? Because I th- it sounds very technical, but I don't know that it is that technical. It can be. It depends on what product you work on. So I was just explaining to, um, I, you know, I do a lot of like uh, workshops with kids and mm-hmm. like uh, black girls who code. And so I was explaining it using an iPhone. I'm like, somebody had to think about the iPhone, right? They had to think about the iPhone, they had to think about the iPad, and they had to think about um, iPhone, iPad, and what's the other one? And the, the um, iPod Touch, or yeah. yeah. Yep. So I'm like, those three, I was like, when Steve Jobs thought of this, right? The original product manager, he thought of this. He knew he wanted all three of those things, but you had to figure out how it's supposed to work, how it's supposed to look, how it's supposed to work, uh, or how all these things come together in the main sequential order of what he wanted to do. So a lot of people don't know this, but even though the iPhone came last, it was always the intention. All those other versions were just scaled down versions of what the iPhone was. The iPhone was the original idea, and then we scaled it back, and the working kind of proof of concepts became products that they sold to try to validate that the iPhone would actually work. Mm-hmm. But that is what a product manager is doing. And so thinking through software um, and thinking through like what what users want, um, how can we get there? What's the fastest path to success? Maybe the iPhone, all right, that's five years from now, but we can make iPod Touch, it can look like the iPhone, we can see how users interact with it and put everything on it, but phone capabilities and see how that works, right? Um, and start to, you know, to build these things out. And so um, it's just a, a person who is responsible for thinking of, you know, if you're in a R&D type of product role, there's a lot of product managers, but if you're an R&D product manager, which is what I work on, you have the coolest job in the world because you think of the next new technology, right? Um, you know, Dreamforce is next week, and it's so cute seeing all my other stuff. I'm like, oh man, I remember what I thought of that. Wow, look at that. Ooh, look at my other little one. Good job. Wow. Go ahead. You know, and it's all this like software, just random stuff that I thought about um, based on data, experiments, projections, and we, we start working through it. And so um, it can be a technical role. I've definitely been in much more technical um, work because I was building software for software developers. But I've also built software for consultants. I built COVID software. That's probably like some of my claim to fame software. Um, so I always tell people like, um, when COVID hit and you went somewhere and you had to fill out the paper, have you been sick of 14 days experience in that and eventually became digital? A lot of that software was still for software and I was a lead product manager for that. Mm-hmm. And so that's like my like, I thought I was going to get Forbes 30 under 30 and I'm after doing that. 
I heard. <laughs> well, don't feel too bad because I heard a lot of people pay to get on that. So yeah, because I'm like, whoa, 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 how did this person get it? I built COVID software. Like what? Like my shit's on the news. So when y'all see those forty under 40, 30 under thirty, yeah, some of them people really ain't doing that that they yeah. paid to be there. Yeah, because if you start if you start looking up some of the stuff that they built, you'd be like, yeah. I'm like, my software was contributed to bubble basketball, like. Because we work with Disney, Disney needed that to open the park to do bubble basketball. Mm. So it's like, I'm like, I had all of this in there. First of all, why am I? These, these are things I'm just putting out the light. I gotta start talking. I, I, I don't yes. talk about work. So anybody who knows me knows I just a firm boundary. When I'm with my personal friends, we talk about personal things. Mm-hmm. My work life is just my job. But yeah, that kind of stuff, that's how I got to move so fast. Okay, yeah, because I was like, I remember you came out there, I was like, okay, she working at Salesforce. Then, Next thing I know, you director, senior director of product, getting yeah. people jobs at Salesforce. I'm like, is Marty smarter than I think she is? <laughs> like, what's going on? But yeah, I started off doing that, built a startup working. So yeah, consulting software first, then developing marketplace and building out software. So if you think like um, you and I need the app store, we don't have apps. Yeah. Software developers have Google app stores too, where they can take little pieces of code and buy that mm-hmm. to be able to help them develop apps faster. So I worked in the marketplace to do that. Um, then I did COVID software that kind of like sent me into like the stratosphere Salesforce. I started working closer with like mm-hmm. our CEO or chief product officer. Like I was on a first name basis with a lot of these folks. And then what did they let me do after that? Slack, they put me on Slack. So Slack was one of the biggest acquisitions in the last decade in tech. And then I worked on, I would say, the, the end part of that. So I wasn't involved in due diligence and acquisition. But once we decided to purchase it, the merging of the companies and merging of the two software platforms together, and I was a lead product person that shipped the first set of products between the two companies. And then now I'm working on learning development software. Um, and that's when announced it's going to be next week for Dreamforce. <laughs> Dreamforce. Um, it's so. And then I was a professor. <laughs> We're going to get into that. But like, I got to go all the way back to producer. Like, did you, like you said, you did this other program. So was that like uh, computer I the, engineering? I got the technical chops at Hewlett Packard. Okay. HB hired me um, and basically liked my personality, loved my story about being a first college, first generation college grad. It's actually a really, another amazing story for my dad, actually. When I went in my senior year, and this is something I still do to this day, some advice he gave me. So when I went into my senior year of college, he said, there are very few times in life where you have, where you get to know something that's coming before it comes. Very rare times where God lets you know something's coming. You know a year from now, you got to graduate. And so you need to be praying now for the things you need to graduation. What does that look like? You know, you need a job, you know, you need a house, you know, you want to live certain places. It's like, make a list of the things that you need and you pray over it. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote out. Everything and I, I, I'm just, I know I still have it on, on, a, on a tablet somewhere of me, and I have it for every phase of life, every big moment. I have these pieces of paper because I've been doing this since I was 19, 20, 19 or 20, hmm. of writing these things out, praying about it, and then they happen, right? And so I wrote out that I wanted $60,000, that I wanted to work in tech because I had an internship that summer, and that internship I saw, oh, I was there as a business intern. I'm like, oh, Tech side is where I need to be at. My dad heard me saying, so I'm like, all right, I get where this is going. And so I just prayed about it. 
I interview with every major tech company in Silicon Valley because they used to call, you know, Purdue Query, Silicon Query, right? Like every major tech company would come recruit from us in their engineer school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually had an interview with Hewlett Packard, but the um, interviewer missed their, um, their flight. Mm-hmm. And so that was fall semester and they never rescheduled it. And they happened to come back spring semester where they were recruiting for engineers. And somebody tweeted about it, like, oh, I just on campus. And so I just showed it. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe I can tell somebody that I had an interview. Maybe they'll let me have an interview. And so I prepped so much for the first interview. I came in. And so it was like, you know, like a big open forum. And they were presenting who they are and what they do. And I had questions. And my questions were so good that they offered me an interview. And in the interview, he told me, we didn't even talk. Because the interview was about data modeling. He was like, you never dated no? I said, no. I don't even know what you're talking about. He said, you got three months between graduation and when this job starts. Would you be willing to take a class on it and take some type of intro to tech? We'll train you on the rest. And my first manager, he told me, when he offered me the job, he said, I can't, he said, I can't teach soft skills. I can't teach the, the grit and charisma that you have. Mm-hmm. I can teach you how to be technical. And that's what we did. And shout out to Kurt. Always love you. Appreciate you. You gave me a lot of really solid life advice, but also career advice um, around how to do stuff. One of the things that I use with my team all the time, or if you ever talk to me about corporate stuff and you tell me you're not happy at your job, I'm going to tell you this. I know right now you want to be pitching, but sometimes I need you to play shortstop. You play a position right now, and the opportunity opens up to pitch. I let you pitch. You tell me all the time when I wanted to try different things. He's like, Mario, no. I just need you to play. He was a former baseball player. And so he always gave me all these like baseball analogies. And I'm like, all right, cool. But now that I'm older, I tell myself that, but I also tell the very ambitious young people on my team that mm. I know you want to be a pitcher, but I need you to play shortstop. Okay. All right. So you've had all these people pouring into you, right? Mm-hmm. Very um, blessed in that way. And now you're you're pouring into others, right? You mm-hmm. talked about being a professor, you have your nonprofit, like, mm-hmm. so like, what went into that? Like, what kind of, what was the process to getting into doing the professor thing and doing the nonprofit? Um, I think the nonprofit came first. Um, when I first started in the day, that was the easy part. Um, you know, I grew up learning to help people, right? My dad would pick up homeless people out the street, make me get in the back seat, put them in the front seat, and take them to go get a burger and talk to them like God, right? So I always grew up in this, like, being learned, being taught to help people. And so when I moved out to the band, I realized how in demand product management was as a career. Um, and I was very fortunate to get into product before it got popular. Right mm-hmm. now, it's like always on every list is a top career to get into in tech, right? Right. But, um, and so I was able to start to help people. And so it kind of just blossomed out of that. I hated my first product job. I cried every day. I job some therapy and everything because I was messed up about it um and i kept feeling like you know was did i even do this because i wanted to or did i do this because i thought dad wanted me to do this like i had a lot of strong feelings about it and so helping people actually started to validate me um, as i would help people get jobs help people get opportunities um and teach products to people and they would have these really amazing success stories and i realized you know i am good because you have to be good to teach mm-hmm. and so you know, that became something called floating chair. Um, comes from the Shirley Chisholm quote, you can't have a seat at the table when you bring a floating chair. And so that's what product felt like a lot for, for folks was helping them get these floating chairs um, and these seats at the table because a product person is one of the most essential jobs in the organization. And product has a very clear line to C-suite of all the tech roles. That's the clearest one to either being a chief product officer, a CEO, or a CIO, or CMO. Um, so that's 
that was part of it. Um, and then, you know, what's the saying? You know, you, you give some like room for you. Um, people talk. I never talk about it. I still don't talk about it. A lot of people don't know what it does. They just know I got one. Mm-hmm. And, um, but people started to talk about it and they would put my name in the app for different things. And so three years ago, the University of Washington comes and they want me to talk at a conference. And in doing the prep, I put in there like, oh, I know. So, you know, responsible voting chair, voting chair, which created 2 million salaries. We're like, hold on, we're trying to do something like this. Would you help us build a curriculum around this? And I'm like, how much? How much money you got? <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's always a good question. Um, all right, bet. At first, I said no, because I was like, it's going to be too much. And two jobs, maybe second job. I'm used to second job being, you know, a little bit more transaction. And so I'm like, well, we're two jobs before, what's another one? And I just jumped back in it, two feet deep. And so we built something called the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. And so that helps um, black and brown folks, well, I'm sorry, it helps historically marginalized people uh, get their first job in, in tech and in product. And so um, we've seen a lot of good growth with that too, million dollars in donations. Um, so it's been a really cool little journey. And then with that came a teaching job because mm-hmm. they didn't have a way to pay me for a service like that. They'd never done something like that. And so like we can pay to be a professor. And so I became a professor for MBA students, actually, even though I don't have an MBA. I taught mm. MBA students um, in an ethics and technology class. Okay. Um, this is at Washington. University of Washington School. Top 25 business school, let me be a teacher. And I have never. She, don't, she don't got a doctorate. She don't have an MBA. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. That's why I always tell people like. Wait, right there. <laughs> It ain't fair, but like I always tell people, like I got my MBA, but a lot of times people think I got my MBA because I wanted to like pivot mm-hmm. in my career. I was like, bro, you don't really need an MBA to pivot careers. Mm-hmm. I'm like, most people care about your your work experience or your relationships. If you have a relationship with somebody, that can help you navigate certain things that you don't mm-hmm. necessarily know because people will work with you because someone's vouching for you. But I was like, the MBA is really for the network. I was like, I could give a damn. Mm-hmm. about like I learned some things yes but the network that I got now on top of the Howard network just makes me a lot more makes it easier for me to like pivot and work different rooms but like mm-hmm. I think the MBA thing is or the extra degrees unless unless you're a doctor or a lawyer the extra degrees yeah. don't really do much um I, I had a good professor who told me exactly you know starting the MBA program very shortly after undergrad and that professor was actually from Harvard and she told me, she goes, you don't even know MBA. She's like, I have a Harvard MBA. Everything that you've learned between your both of your degree programs has covered everything you will get out of a Harvard MBA. Just go get a job. Mm-hmm. Super sound advice. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate you. <laughs> Work experience matters. And um, I just went out and started hustling. Um, and then, like I said, like um, I think when you move in in purpose and you are moving in that kind of like divine energy, God's going to send people on your path to help you out. And it just seemed like everywhere there was always this one person who just took a liking to me, bored into me. And I just was very fortunate to kind of have those kind of sponsors and mentors show up right when I needed them over the last kind of decade. And I think that's also important to talk about, Will, is like you're an introvert, right? Mm-hmm. But Marty's a people person, but doesn't have social skills. <laughs> We're not going to talk about your condition. <laughs> 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 
So, do you want to talk about that? We can. Okay. So, Marty was diagnosed with what, the last two years? Yeah. Yeah, two years ago, I was diagnosed mm-hmm. as having autism and specifically Asperger's. Um, and so. Which opened, opened up a lot of. You know, the light bulb hit for why she interacts with people in a certain way. It hit for me, but it also hit for a lot of people around that. You know, that was most of it. At first, people were like, nah, nah, you don't got that. That's all right. You know. Um, and I think, too, it's funny because I've learned a lot, you know, since I got diagnosed with it. But one of the things that I think was really interesting is I fit every stereotype. Mm-hmm. The most, the least diagnosed people with. Asperger's specifically, that specific type of autism are people who were born before 1995, people who are people of color, people who grew up in poor and underprivileged neighborhoods. I had every, and women, women are significantly less diagnosed. I had everything, so I just fell through the cracks. But but I but I think there's also the stigma of having Asperger's, right? Like there is, and I think there's also this opinion of what people look think it looks like. They think it looks like Mark Zuckerberg, right? You talking monotone voice? Yes, you talking monotone voice, like you know, and you are just like so awkward and you can't function. But one of the things that I've learned in this journey is the women with reason women get diagnosed with it less is because so much of what is related to autism is normalized for what women do, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, she's she's just off to herself. She's quiet. She's shy. She's a shy girl, right? Mm-hmm. No, maybe there's something else to it, right? Um, you know, she, women specifically with um, Asperger's that are very, very astute speakers. They're very, you know, um, vast vocabulary. They're very good at having conversations. And so that adds to it as well. Um, and so it's like all these little things that, and people are used to that. Girls talk a lot, you know, she's, um, what's the word? She's Loquacious. Got, yeah. That, that's all stuff that goes with girls. Mm-hmm. But when men are like that, then it becomes a little bit more. Like, why does nigga talk so much? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, oh, she's just a black girl with attitude. She's spicy because I'm just saying things that I'm like, you know, people are, you cut, you cut through it. Yeah. Uh, something that's normal for me. Oh, she's a straight shooter. You know, mm-hmm. um, she's kind of got a masculine side. She's like mm-hmm. one of the guys, right? And all of that are things that are related to having Asperger's. <laughs> yeah. So when Marty told us this on the trip, I was like, "That's on brand. It makes sense." Um, and then you were like, I think people owe me an apology for. Oh, absolutely. Marty wants apologies from everyone that in thought, my life. Yeah. First off, and anybody can relate to this. You're a little kid, you do something wrong, look me in my eye and tell me to do it. I can't look you in the eye. Smack, look me in my eye and tell you, and I'm looking everywhere but your eye because I literally can't make eye contact with you. Like, mm. I have learned how to do it, but it's like when I look at you, I don't look at you, I'm looking mm. about right You're looking at a point. Yeah, yeah, because I had to learn how to do it because I'm literally getting whooped and spanked as a child because I'm not making eye contact or I'm saying stuff. My mom would literally come and stop saying stuff. It's like, you can't control what you say. Actually, I can't. <laughs> Actually, you know. Um, and so, when that skill set and learning how to kind of like navigate around like normies and normal world is called mirroring and masking. Mm-hmm. And women are extremely good at mirroring and masking because that is what girls do, right? Oh, she's got lip gloss. I want one. She's got this. I want one. And so, it's completely normalized. But when you're on the spectrum, you have to do that to be able to um, kind of like navigate the world. So what you're telling me is most of the women in our lives are masculine, mirroring, yeah. or are autistic. 
Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, like, shout out to the people um, that are raising autistic children, right? That are autistic or, you know, put into these boxes. I think um, there are so many stigmas that are associated with conditions that people have because people are just uneducated about what it actually means, right? Um, like, I think people get obsessed with like one example of what that looks like. And they're like, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's it. And I have friends who love to deny. Yeah, I'm gonna have a friend whose name rhymes with Manny, loves to deny because because I, again, autism is a spectrum. And because I'm on the high functioning end of that spectrum, loves it. Like, you don't have that. Why do you always say you have that? That takes away from people who really do. No, just because I'm on a different side of the spectrum doesn't lessen that I have it. It just means that I was very fortunate and blessed to be able to be high functioning and have this go on. But if you think about it, I'm right in the perfect career, I'm in the perfect space. Like the Bay Area is home of autism people. Like it's home of the nerds, home of the autism. So it's it's run by autistic people. Elon, Zuck, Gates, all specifically autistic, also Asperger's. So it's like I fit right in. It's okay. Maybe your maybe most of your friends are also autistic and we haven't been diagnosed because we all have some. I can see you being on there with me. Well, I was a gifted student. Mm-hmm. I you have a photographic memory. I do have a photographic memory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't like people. <laughs> but I am very social. I just don't like people. And you notice everything about everything. Very yes. Cute yes. Um, and when oh. I am focused on certain things, I'm very focused on them. Mm. Uh, mm, I mean, that's fine. You know, I can be okay with being high functioning. Yeah, there's a couple of things that are specific to Asperger's, and so like the memory is one, the photographic memory, um, the long memory. Like I have my earliest memories, I was two and a half, three. Yeah, I have very great long memory, terrible short memory. I'd be like, which time out? Yeah, have all those things. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I, I created a symbol. Um, I don't know any other people let's closely start, let's start first, but this is what I, um, when I first found out, I was like, this is my thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Upside down? Yeah. Eight time. Eight time. Okay. Cool. <laughs> um, so you've done this nonprofit work. Like, mm-hmm. what is the biggest thing that you feel like you've accomplished with it? Um... I'll say there's two. There's the personal and then there's the impact part. Mm-hmm. For me personally, um, I would love to say the accolades and awards and all the things would be, would probably be what people would think I'd say, but it was actually the grit that I got. It took a whole nother level of grit to work for free at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, the university could only pay me for so long. And then afterwards, I had to just keep working, right? Mm-hmm. If I wanted to stay involved in my program. And so when you were doing something like that, out of love and passion, you get tired. You get tired of doing it. You don't want to do it anymore. You know, there's sacrifices that come with doing that. And so I think it developed an entirely new level of grit for me. Hmm. Um, if all my years of working two jobs and do it, this one did it um, because it really forced me to dig deep and to keep showing up even when I didn't want to, even though I'm not even being paid to. And there was, you know, upwards of 20 hours to be a spit at some points working on this thing and trying to get this thing off the ground and get it stabilized to help people. I think from an impact perspective, it's the one thing I know I did right in life. Mm-hmm. It's the one thing that I know that if, you know, I'm off this earth tomorrow, that I help people, that I truly help people and I change the lives and the trajectory of people's lives that look like me. 
And I get that. I get to own that forever. And I also get the nice benefit of I got a friend who owes me a favor at pretty much any tech company you can <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, you, you'll never be out of work for too long. Never be out of work. I got somebody who would vouch for me and, and put my name down and say and go hard for me. Um, That's real. And so I, I love that. And I love how my students talk about me. But I also love when my students talk to each other. Like we had our, our conference back in May. And I walked up. We're on our seventh cohort right now. Mm-hmm. Our eighth cohort. And I walked up to a student, to like a six-person table, and it was cohort one, two, three, four, and five, convincing a girl who was thinking about joining the program. And they were all telling their stories of how they had met each other. And one mentored two, or two mentored one, three mentored two, whatever. And so they were trying to convince this girl to join, and they'd offer their mentorship and their help, and they'd all had jobs and product, and were working in corporate, and they were telling the stories of, you know, I was making this much money, and then I got this. You know, I was doing this in my career and I got this and then I created, I got community too because I got these friends and we all a group of friends and all this. And so um, those types of stories for me, um, the the girl who was in an abusive relationship, did the program, it helped her to get a job. She could afford to leave her husband, right? You know, the guy who was homeless, literally homeless, used my address for his first job um, mm-hmm. to sign the, sign the paperwork, right? And he went to went on to make a quarter million dollars a year, right? From homeless to that. Um, the girl who was working in a strip club and is now making $200,000 a year, you know, from bartending a strip club to that. Like, the stories are, and these are black people, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody's story isn't even that dire. One of my favorites is, a guy that I helped get in at Tesla for Tesla stock shot up. And he had a family and two kids. And he got in, Tesla stock shot up. This is like pandemic time. And he, his offer and his uh, stock portfolio become a million dollar portfolio, right? Mm. That changes the trajectory of his life for his wife. First kids, they moved to Europe and everything. The kids and started home. And these were people that were already in the workforce? Like they had already graduated college or they, they graduated from college. Most of them were doing jobs that they didn't love. Mm-hmm. And um, I prefer to work in mid-career transitioner. So I don't really deal with like undergrads or like people who are fresh out of college. It's simply even working a job and then you want to switch over to product for some reason or another. And and I've been able to help those people. And those people go to they actually have to go to University of Washington for No. It's all no, that's the other thing. Um, it's all virtual. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a student. We do provide you a credential but you don't have to be a student um, at the university to go. Um, and it's free. It's 150% free. It's not, oh, pay yeah. nine ninety nine. You got my wheel spinning. It's free. We run completely out donations. Um, and the reason that it was free is because I just feel like you shouldn't. There are so many barriers for people of color, and especially somebody who's had to jump over every single one. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm one of a few people I know that started at the very bottom of the product management ladder and has come up to this place, right? This seven levels, right? right. From start from where I started to where I am now. With no breaks, no handouts, no oh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm gonna switch companies and get a two level No. And so I think knowing that and knowing what it feels like, I have a lot of empathy for that. And so um, I was very shocked and very blessed that the university allows me to offer this for free. And we run off the donations. So the donations from corporations to pay the teachers. And it was just uh, me thinking about, I hate business plans that monetize the people who need to help the most, right? Mm-hmm. So you have some amazing service, but then you charge people who need the help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things I thought about was like, the companies need us, we don't need them. Mm-hmm. So why don't we charge people for access to us? 
and access for these training skill set of people of color who know what they're doing and who are learning. You know, when I built the program, we went and recruited PMs from the best companies, right? Fame, whatever, to help me build out this curriculum. So you're learning how to do product from Apple, Google, Amazon, Salesforce, all these different companies, all in one experience. And so I'm like, you're getting this really trained, well-trained people. And so the companies bought in. And how long, and how long is the program? Um, it was 12 weeks. Um, 12 weeks. And um, yeah. So three months of your life, your life can change. In less than that, because a lot of them get the job before they graduate. All right. Um, so let's pivot into like fun Marty, right? So <laughs> yeah, Marty's not accepting applications for new friends. Uh, <laughs> it's probably a five year wait list. That's uh, not true. I'm a very friendly person. That's one of the things that comes with autism. Yeah, difference. but what I'm saying is, <laughs> none of y'all new people don't hit up Marty thinking you can go to MartyCon. Uh, yeah, no, um, <laughs> it's not gonna happen. Yeah, there's a five year list for sure. Um, but like, if, back to your father, you, you said like your father inspired yeah. these trips, right? Like, uh, what was your first trip? The uh, very first one was to Toronto to Carabana. All right, so. For, now, Marty's birthday is at the end of July, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to tell her birthday because y'all look weird and people will like stalk her. That, yeah. yeah. Um, but in July, um, and she just got back from Bali. So, like, mm-hmm. and this was year 10. Nah, year next year's 10. Next year's year 10, right? So, and I'm going to make sure that I get to year 10 because I've been to two of the trips, mm-hmm. right? And Marty likes me to come because I'm the person that makes sure it's they have fun. I make sure everybody's on time and we do things that we say we're going to do. He didn't come last year, but it's late. Had he been there, we were on time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that might, is that something to do with Asperger's too? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Tell you take the test. But um, I think that's just because my mom always was late. Mm-hmm. It pissed me no, off. No, no, no. You are anal retentive boy. Right? You ask me. Whatever. Um, but yeah, so like, how did your, like, why, how did your father kind of inspire these these trips? I think, you know, like I said, my dad was terminally ill for 15 years. Seeing somebody slowly dying, even though, you know, we had high hopes, at the end of the day, slowly dying. Mm. Every birthday was like a really big deal. Mm. And so, and he was not a birthday person. He grew up with a lot of siblings. You know, his birthday, his mom just made his favorite cake. And it wasn't until he had kids that he even got into receiving gifts and all mm. that. And it was from us doing it. And one of the beautiful things is when he passed, that was what was in his desk. All these little things that we had made since we were little kids. And right. he had a file folder for every kid, seven kids, everyone had a file folder and all of your big moments were in this file folder, you know, and he had kept them in his desk. They were never allowed to go into or touch. Everything was locked. Mm. And so to see these things were really beautiful, right? Um, but I think the other aspect of that is the sad part, which is, okay, that was 53. He's 55, he wants to go to Maui. Go to, go to Maui, he wants to turn 55, I'm going to go. My dad was not a traveler, he was not somebody who went on a lot of trips. And part of that was, you know, the medical part. Mm-hmm. He said, we're going to Maui, and we're going to have this big family vacation. And that, that day never came. Mm-hmm. He planned, he lived his whole life taking care of his kids. When I get older, I'm going to just travel. He said, I'm just traveling with my wife, we're going to go to these places. Like, and country people, right? He wants to go to Biloxi, Mississippi, <laughs> Maui, right? He wants to try to live, live, get off the stage. He's not right? trying to leave the U.S. Right. And But these moments just never came. And so in that kind of year after he left, and I'm thinking about like, how do I honor him? How do I honor him? And who do I, what has this experience taught me? One of the things is don't wait, right? What would it mean to do it now? What would it mean to do it in you know, the next couple months versus putting things out for opportunity that never happens, right? And so 
the way I approach my birthdays, if this is the very last one, this is how I'm gonna go after it, right? And this mm-hmm. is what I'm gonna do, and I'm gonna spend it doing something I've never done that people absolutely love and giving people these cool experiences um, and doing it with my friends, right? Those are the things that I enjoy. And so um, that's it really just came out to just seeing all those years of him just pushing and be so fortunate to get one more birthday and celebrate so big for him. And then eventually they stopped and so I started living my own life like, what if I died when my dad died? What if I die at the same age? Hmm. I only got X amount of years left. Right. So we gotta make all of them count. That's real. And I think just from a traveling experience, right? I think the first time I traveled out of the country by myself, it opened my eyes to like one, how arrogant we are as Americans. They don't even like us. <laughs> well, just from the fact that like you don't really think about the what privileges. the privileges that we have or like the fact that other people are watching. Mm-hmm. Like I I don't watch I, I, I'm I not watch other cultures. Yeah, or countries like no. I don't care about your elections. Yeah. Um like, do like what does that got to do with me? Um but it does, especially as an investor in business or in stocks and things of that nature, you is like, oh, I probably should pay attention because what happens there can affect my market and all these things. But I think also it's just like once you get that itch, mm-hmm. it's c- kind of hard to like not keep doing it. Because, mm-hmm. like, because when I went when I went to Carabana, that was my first time like leaving the country, doing something that I wanted to do because I went to Jamaica before, but it wasn't something I wanted to do at the time. It became a thing for me. It was like, oh, I gotta go because like, oh, I ain't never seen that, or like, I never have poutine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, this is different, but I like it. Or like, mm-hmm. like, and like, it just be it becomes fulfilling. And want, you want to share that with other people too. Like, mm-hmm. like I always tell people like, hey, if you can afford it, you don't got to stay in the most expensive places like that. Most people can afford it, they just don't realize it. Right, and I'm like, there's payment plans. Mm-hmm. We talked about this in like episode two, like you can figure out a way to get there if you want to get there. Um, so like, what's the, out of the nine places you've been, cause I know you've been to other places, right? But out of the nine Marty Cons, what's been your, your most, the, your favorite? They're like children. I can't pick one that's one because they all were significant. She doesn't want to offend people no, that weren't on certain. No, trips. no, no. It's it's really they were all significant for different reasons, right? I put a lot of thought and time into curating the people, the vibe, the experience where we go, and so all of them are significant for different reasons. The first one's significant because it's the first one. Of course. Like I didn't even know what I was starting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the when you came, the first one, Phuket was significant. It was the first co-ed one was the first time that I like really really planned and you know done it at that scale because we had 10 people on that trip yeah and I've never done it that was always a girl's trip the first four or five always girl's trip so bringing in the guys brought in a whole nother element and really changed you know (laughs) quite quite a bit right but in a fun and engaging way right Mm -hmm. um this year was really special it was probably one of the smaller ones that I've done. It's not the smallest, but it's the smaller ones that I've done, you know, just a few girls in Bali um, and taking it kind of back to how I started girls, girls trip, we went doing something really fun, but given where I'm at in my life right now, I needed that, just that feminine energy. I love women, I love being around my female friends. And so to have the girliest of girl trips in the number one place for female travel was amazing. Right. Um, I was so, jealous, and I'm not even a girl. Y'all was, y'all was having fun. <laughs> we had an amazing time, and we kept talking about that. Yeah, and then we're here. We would be able to do this, and then we're here. They'd be hating, you know. Um, but it was, it was good. So they were all, they were all special. Um, 2020 was special because 
people risked the Rona for me. It came out for me and we still had it. Um, and that was a special one too. So they're, they're all, they're all different. That's right. So, uh, we're gonna wrap up, but like, what's next for Marty? Like, yeah. like, what do you have on the docket? Like, what do you want to accomplish next? Um, I think right now, um, I'm looking a lot into, you know, I think it's some men do, but I don't think women do this enough. And thinking about legacy and who you want to be and where you want your life to go. And so one of the exercises I do with myself is I take myself five, 10 years in the future. And I look back and I say, what do I want to be able to say about myself? Mm-hmm. What do I want to, what does she look like? What does she enjoy? Where does she like to go? What are her experiences and what does it take for me to get there? And so right now I'm thinking about 40 year old self. What is my 40 year old self want? Um, you know, does she she's want kind of far, still far away from 40. <laughs> does she want a family? Does she want, where does she want to be in her career? What does she look like? You know, like what are those experiences? Like where does she, she live, right? And so I'm working on those things now. I'm just trying to figure out how I can today create the life that I want instead of waiting until I'm 40 to get it. That's dope. Well, I definitely appreciate you coming. This has been one enlightening, <laughs> um, but two, like, it's always great to like get to know my friends a little bit deeper mm-hmm. because we probably never would never, we probably would never have any, yeah. have these conversations. But yeah, and I want to flip them to yours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can't. Um, but you know, like I said, guys, uh, thank you for joining today. Uh, I wish you peace, patience, understanding, knowledge, wisdom, discernment, health, strength, resolve. Uh, So you guys be easy or don't, but every choice has a consequence and every action has a reaction.